Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you're doing okay. I have a great episode for you. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Jamie Nakamura Lin, author of a new memoir, entitled The Night Parade. That feels simple to me. It feels easy to understand that kind of grief. Whereas the anticipatory grief felt so layered in with this fear and this anxiety and this, am I spending enough time with my father? Like, how do I manage, how do I manage all these different things together? And of course, that anticipatory grief is mitigated by the fact that my father was still alive. So you get to spend that time with him and I would give anything to be able to spend that time with him again. But in terms of the feeling itself of anticipatory grief versus like this like retroactive grief, the anticipatory one felt much more complicated and confusing and difficult. All right. That was Jamie Nakamura Lin, author of a new memoir entitled The Night Parade, available from Mariner Books. The Night Parade is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club. If you would like to sign up for the book club, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. The Night Parade bills itself as a speculative memoir. It is a genre-bending and deeply moving book that mirrors the sensation of being caught between realms. Jamie Nakamura Lin braids her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other haunted topics with storytelling tradition. In the night parade, she is exploring some of the darker corners of the human experience, driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? My conversation with Jamie Nakamura Lin is coming up in just a bit. Before we get going, a quick reminder about my weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for free over at Substack. That is where the newsletter lives, bradlisty.substack.com. 
It is once a week. I will let you know about the latest episodes of this program. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you are a regular listener of this program, if you like it, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right, so my guest once again is Jamie Nakamura Lynn. Her new memoir is called The Night Parade, available from Mariner Books. The Night Parade is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club. Jamie Nakamura Lynn is a Japanese, Taiwanese, Okinawan American author whose work has been featured in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, Catapult, and Electric Literature. She received her MFA in nonfiction from Penn State University, and she lives in the Chicago area. I had a great time meeting Jamie Nakamura Lynn and talking with her about her new book. Very happy to be spotlighting it in the book club this month. So let's get to the conversation. Here I am with Jamie Nakamura Lynn and her new memoir, One More Time, is called The Night Parade. Speculative memoir, I think, is more of a burgeoning term and genre and the idea of speculative nonfiction in general. And I think, you know, as it's emerging, there's a lot of differences in how different people choose to define it and how they use it. So I think some people use the term speculative nonfiction or speculative memoir to refer to any types of writing that kind of use perhaps or what if. So text that kind of imagines possibilities or very realistic things that they weren't there for but are talking about in their book. When I use the term speculative memoir, I'm thinking about using a lot of elements or ideas from speculative fiction in my memoir. So for example, using things like time travel or using ideas or elements like portals or things that often we see more in speculative fiction and kind of using those as entrance points and um, lenses for writing nonfiction. So this is, I mean, gosh, I'm going to be outing myself as like not hip to what's happening, but speculative nonfiction is a thing. I think so. I think it's becoming a thing. Yes. Um, It is, there's a literary magazine called speculative nonfiction, and I think they use it in a different way. I think than I do, but I think especially with books like In the Dream House by Carmen Rima Shadow and books like Monster Portraits by Sophia Samatar. And so there's other there's works that are coming out now that are starting to be lumped together in underneath this larger umbrella. And again, as it's being developed, it's a little bit, you know, porous and the boundaries are a little bit undefined. But I feel like in the past few years, definitely the term's been starting to be bandied about a little bit more. Okay. Then when you set out to write this book, was that on your mind or was it something that came later? No, it came later. It definitely came through my frustration of trying to write things in other ways and then not being able to. I think there were certain 
sections, certain chapters of this book that I tried to write very straightforwardly. And as I went draft after draft after draft, they just weren't coming together. And it wasn't saying what I wanted it to say. And I could just tell it it wasn't working. And my editor would go through them and I would try to do multiple drafts and it just wasn't working out. And then I felt like when I try to do them in different ways, for example, writing in second person or third person or changing the tense or changing the perspective, those were the ways that kind of gave me the freedom and ability to approach it in a different way. Because I think especially for parts of my story, my life story that have been bigger, for example, like being hospitalized when I was 17, I've told those stories so many times in my life that they started to become kind of calcified. And it started to become very difficult to find something that was new or fresh about it. It became kind of this like rote. And so when I was writing, it was hard not to follow those, to fall into that path. And I really had to like kind of like shake myself out of it. And part of the advice that my editor gave me when I was deep into revisions was that lean into the weird, reality isn't your strong suit. And I think that really (laughs) gave me freedom to try to do other things that I've really loved. I've always really loved like fairy tales and stories and speculative writing that's really influenced by fairy tales and mythology. And it really gave me permission to try to use those things in my memoir. Well, which you which you do to great effect. I mean, there is, and forgive me if I'm getting these terminologies and exact details wrong, but you structure the book uh, according to like Jap- traditional Japanese mm-hmm. four-act structure. Yes. And then each chapter is uh, named with a character from like Asian mythology yes. or folklore mm-hmm. and speaks to whatever the content of that particular chapter is like thematically and yeah. in terms of what actually happens. Correct. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that came later uh, at the, in, with the encouragement of your editor. So those parts, I think the, the way I had structured it had come before I sold the book. And then the idea of using each of the, the yokai or the monster characters had come when I started thinking, first thinking of the project as a project. So I think that started very early because the book really began its life as a catapult essay column. Catapult, RIP, no longer exists as a literary journal anymore. But in 2020, I started writing an essay column for them called The Monsters in the Mirror. And every other month, I wrote an essay that had to do with one of these yokai, one of these monsters or ghosts or legends or creatures from... Japanese folklore. And I use that kind of as the lens for whatever I was talking about. So that started earlier. But I think the parts that came on later, as my editor and I were working on them, were things like using second person or using third person or really kind of like shifting perspectives. And like one of my essays or one of my chapters starts out, you know, thinking about like the perspective of like a bird. So things like that with the style and perspective that shifted more later on. Because in the beginning, I was thinking more of just like a first person kind of storytelling device. But I had thought about using the yokai as an entryway from the beginning of the conception of this book. Okay. And when you did start experimenting in this way with the encouragement of your editor, it was your editor, right? Not your agent. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That opened things up for you. Yeah. And, and you leaned into the weird. Yes. Do you have a sense of why 
you work in that mode and why your work comes alive when you lean in in that way? I think I've always been interested in this hybrid type of nature or the things work that's kind of on the border of fiction and nonfiction. And I think I've always really been interested, like I said, in fairy tales and mythology. And so I think being able to bring the stories that I really love to read and incorporating some of the effects and some of the shapes and being able to feel like, oh, I can bring those shapes into nonfiction really felt like I could blend those in a way that hopefully is interesting and illuminating for the reader. And I think by using those type of effects, it also helps me as the writer to feel more open and able to write about parts of my life that were difficult. You know, my book's about my bipolar disorder, my father's death, a lot of other, you know, times that are more difficult to talk about. And I think using these type of frames or ideas from fairy tale like universes makes it more interesting and entertaining for me to write and also hopefully for the reader to participate into that world as well did it help you and it helped you i would assume get some sort of deeper understanding of these big events in your life like using these frames and exploring this folklore did it bring new insights it definitely did the first time i tried to write about myself in long form was when I was in graduate school. And that was, you know, in 2011. And I was trying to write an essay collection all about my bipolar disorder. And I think then it felt very solipsistic because I was only writing about myself. I had nothing to push back against. There was no foil. And so it felt very draining emotionally. And also the text felt very static. So I think when I wrote this book, and I had all these other stories, all the other yokai, all the other research to push back on. It's not only my story, but my story in conversation with all these communal stories over generations. Um, and so I think being able to see that perspective really show me linkages between these things and brought a lot of illumination in that way. Did you grow up learning about the yokai? Like, was it uh, something that was like integrated into your childhood, like storytelling? So I knew some stories of specific yokai, but I didn't know the word yokai. And I didn't know that they were a category. So it's like, you know, growing up and knowing about like the Loch Ness Monster or about like the Yeti, but not knowing they're all like cryptids or something or like not understanding what they are as a category. So I had, you know, books of Japanese children's books that had specific ones like Kappa, which is this kind of like frog, turtle-like creature that's very mischievous, or the Oni, which is this, you know, um, like demon ogre-like character that's probably the one that most Japanese Americans know the most. And so I knew individual stories of them, but I didn't know how they all worked together. I didn't know the theory of them or their history or things like that until I was much older, until I started researching, and that was after I finished graduate school. So then you're doing this column for Catapult about mm -hmm. monster. Was it about monsters? What was it? Yeah. So it was about yokai. Yeah. So each one yeah. um, was connected to yokai. Did you, and you got a book deal off the strength of that series or? So basically, yes. I wrote it all through 2020. And at that time, I also had a piece in the New York Times. And because of that, I started to have a few agents kind of poking at me. And the agent I eventually signed with reached out um, towards the end of 2020 
And I signed with her in, I think, December of 2020. And for the next couple months, we very quickly put together a book proposal using a couple of the essays that already existed and writing a couple new ones and then put together a proposal. And then it sold very quickly in February of 2021. And then between February of 2021 and now, I was just, it was just the book being in process. Yeah. Wow. That's a whirlwind. And all during the pandemic. I mean, so much happened in your life, right? It was a whirlwind, but at the same time, it's been things that I've been thinking about and writing about in different ways for a very long time. I think the first time I tried to put together a book proposal about, you know, my mental illness was when I was 17. I tried to come up with like this draft of what, you know, selling this book could be. And if you look back at my journals from when I was, you know, nine and 10, I say things like, when I have a book or when I write about myself, blah, 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 in the future. So I think it came together very quickly at the end, but it's also been percolating and I've been writing about it in different ways for decades. So it's kind of like slow and fast and slow and fast. Yeah. That's often how it happens. Yeah. Especially when it happens fast. It happens fast because it happens slow, if that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like my stuff needs to ferment for a long time. And after a lot of fermentation, then it can come like all bubble at the end very quickly. It's a beautiful book. You must be thrilled. Yes. Like the the production value of this book <laughs> is notable. I just, you know what? I just said the same thing to uh, Justin Torres on this show, his book mm-hmm. too. Maybe this is just the season for really high-end production value <laughs> books, but like the paper quality, the yes. cover, everything's really nicely done on this book. I'll hold it up for people, but... Um, it's nice to hold in your hands. It does. I When I felt the finished copy for the first time, I was like, it feels like a Bible, like the heft of yeah. it. It's so heavy because the galley is printed just on, you know, regular galley paper and stuff. So it just feels like a regular book. But when you feel the final copy, you're like, oh, the weight of this compared to the size, you can feel how heavy it is. You could, I mean, you could weaponize this book. Yes, you could hit somebody. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Which is part of its appeal for people <laughs> out there. Yeah, it was really nice because because my sister's the illustrator, I got to be very involved with decisions. Like HarperCollins sent us a bunch of different paper samples and we got to pick which paper we wanted. So we got to like oh. test it out. And so we got to be very involved in the nitty gritty of stuff. They were very open with us and being able to do that. So That's lovely. That yeah. Nice. And you just mentioned your sister, Corey, does a bunch of wonderful illustrations in mm-hmm. this book and in the back matter of the book, like breaks yes. down the illustrations. Mm-hmm. Like it's really like, it's the full experience. <laughs> Yeah. Was it nice to collaborate with her? Yeah, it's it was great working with her. Um, when we were young, we collaborated together. We have zines from the time we were in high school where she drew the cover of my zine and she would illustrate the inside of the zine. So it was so cool to see the zines from when I was 17 and she was 14. And then like half our lives later, like or double our lives later, having her do the same thing, illustrate it and do the cover and stuff. So it was great. And it's also difficult. Like we were in family therapy the whole time with my mom and my other sister um, to just try to manage all the different things in the wake of my father's death. Um, So I think being able to navigate like our personal familial relationship and our professional relationship was hard at times, but I'm really so glad that we got to do this together. I, I can't imagine doing it without her. I'm so excited and proud of of how her art turned out yeah that's awesome and it just makes it it like makes it a bit more special you know it's like a family it's true this book really is like a family affair like (laughs) on the page in every way yeah um so as you've touched upon 
the major themes of this book are illness and loss and kind of nightmares, difficult stuff, trying to like what there's a line in the book that I flagged. It's toward the end, I think, but you say my horror is not of death. It is of the death of memory. Mm -hmm. Like that felt notable to me. That felt like it got close to the heart of the thing mm -hmm. is that you're, you're trying to actively remember on the page, uh, mm -hmm. in particular, your father who died not too long ago. Like it was yeah, just before the pandemic. 2018, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you're also, I think, trying to remember your own life mm -hmm. and kind of put together the pieces of how you formed, in particular with respect to your bipolar disorder, which is drawn very vividly. Maybe the fact that you kept a diary and made these zines. By the way, what were these zines about? Were they about bipolar disorder? Yes, they, they all were about trying to, I think, reckon with this in different ways. So yeah, I feel like those two were kind of beginning versions of what the book ended up being because it's me trying to tell the story of what happened to me. So for people listening, you know, who are, have not struggled with bipolar or mm -hmm. don't have close friends or family who do, I think most of us have a casual understanding of bipolar as a kind of cycle between depression and mania, mm -hmm. like highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And I mean, certainly I think in broad strokes, that is the case with people mm -hmm. who have bipolar, but you know, you had what you called rage. Like there were like, mm -hmm. you just talk a little bit about how it manifested for you as mm -hmm. a teen and how you were wrestling with it. And then eventually you went into inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's something that people don't know as much. And definitely I didn't know as much as that often the more mania side can for children often present itself as like, just as rage as, as anger. And I think much more so than like what we think of as like a classic manic episode, which I didn't have until I was much older as a teenager. I just was like so angry and angry in ways I didn't understand and angry that I felt physically, viscerally through my body that I, I could feel myself like changing into something else. And like it was like my whole physiology just changed when this kind of rage overtook me and it would just make me like shaky and my heart would be racing. And it is, I refer to it in the book as like um, that one way I referred to it was like the Incredible Hulk because it, that is kind of what it felt like. Like you could see this like transformation coming over. Okay. Let me ask you a question because this is interesting. Was the anger as you recall it and as you experienced it in that time triggered by something or was it totally nonspecific? Mm -hmm. Like, would you get into a situation that was frustrating for you and then the rage would come and just sort of overtake you? Or was it literally coming from out of nowhere in your experience? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So it, there always was some type of trigger, but it was there were, the triggers, if you thought about it later, were so small and inconsequential that like, you know, usually you just brush them off. It would just be such like a small thing. Like my parents saying, you can't do this small thing that, you know, like a kid wants to do. And my parents would say, no, you can't do that because, you know, we have to do something else this weekend or something like that. So there would always be like a trigger. But my reaction to it would be so outsized to what was actually happening. And then it would just feel like my body would just like explode. And I think now it's hard for me to distinguish sometimes what was bipolar disorder and what was ADHD, which I got diagnosed with much more recently as an adult, only in the past few years. And because I have both of them together, um, some of the presentations can be can be similar. So it's hard to, for me to tell sometimes like what was what, but I do know as a child, like just this anger was would just flood through me. And the only way I knew how to shut it down was by taking all of these pills that would soothe me by, you know, just like shutting my my nervous system down essentially. So when you would when you would go into these spells of rage, mm-hmm. you, just to give an example, your parents say, no, you can't do so and so. You can't do such and such. And it's a minor thing. And then you have this outsized reaction to it. It was, in terms of like the sequencing, mm-hmm. it's like you get the no and then your thoughts start spiraling and then you have a physiological reaction mm-hmm. to the thoughts. Is that yes. the correct progression? Yes. Yeah. And okay. I usually would go into my bedroom and have like, a half an hour long or one hour long, like just episode of like not being able to think about anything else and just my body just like being totally feeling like it was out of my control. Yep. So it usually was just like thinking about it very briefly and going upstairs and then just like exploding in my bedroom. And doing what? Like just punching the pillow or what? Yes, things like that. I think as I got older, I would try to figure out other like coping mechanisms. So one was like, you know, taking a lot of pills and then, you know, self-harm was another way of trying to manage it or like, you know, breaking stuff. And I think all of those were types of ways of me trying to like get this feeling out of my body and to try to like calm it down. What, what kind of pills? So I would take a lot of over-the-counter pills because that's what I had access to. So just things that were like Benadryl or sleeping pills are things that would kind of like slow your system down. And then I also had a lot of sleep problems because of insomnia. So after I was prescribed, you know, like Xanax and stuff like that, then I would also misuse those things as well. So your father was a doctor, mm-hmm. and forgive me if I don't know exactly what kind of doctor. It's probably he was a family but... practice doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, but a medical professional mm-hmm. doctor did, and, and a lot of times, or I guess all the time, right? Bipolar disorder. There's some genetic link, mm-hmm. so there might be other people in the family who mm-hmm. have suffered. So, can you talk a little bit about your father's 
medical profession and perhaps other family members who might have been bipolar, was there maybe an enhanced ability to assess you because of these things and to like recognize what was happening or no? I think because he was a doctor and then because he was my father, those two, those two aspects of his identity blended together and where it gave him a big blind spot when it came to me, which he later, you know, admitted um, when I was 17 and he was like, yes, like we need to get you help was that he said that often parents can't see their children clearly in the same way. And I didn't tell him anything. I hid so much stuff from him and my mother. And he said, because of that, like then he thought that I was doing okay, that he thought he knew best. And I think because he was also a doctor, it also gave him this feeling like, oh, he knows what's right. Because many years before when I was 13, I did have a a therapist tell me, I think she's depressed about me. And my father thought that I wasn't depressed because he thought I would, he as my parent would know better than this woman who had, you know, seen me a couple of times. So I do feel like him being both my father and a doctor gave him this false sense that like he would know if something was wrong. And then he he didn't know that something was wrong. And I think now I know, I think three, three or four members of my family who have bipolar disorder. But at the time, we didn't know anyone who had bipolar disorder genetically in my family. Yeah, I have a child with complicated medical stuff. And it is recognizable and I think makes some human sense. Parents have a hard time believing that there is something the matter like health wise Mm -hmm. with their child. They will deny, like never underestimate Mm -hmm. the power of that, you know, even Mm -hmm. for a father who's a family practice, you know, practitioner, doctor, Mm -hmm. you will look and you'll be like, no, everything's okay. You just, it's, it's hard to to grapple with, you know, the fact that your child might be struggling with an illness. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think now when I think about my own daughter, who's five, I think also because, you know, my ADHD and my bipolar are genetic, I often think about, you know, like, oh, like, how would I recognize or like know those symptoms in her um, if those came up in the future so that we wouldn't best know how to support her. And I think it's really hard as a parent to like miss the forest for the trees, too, because we're with them so much. And you're like, you see all these different things that it can just be really it's really hard. And like I said, I didn't tell my parents anything. So it just took such a long time. And I guess thinking about it, a lot of people don't get help for the bipolar until they're much older. So I feel very lucky that I was able to get it when I was 17 and 18 to get that diagnosis and to get help. But it could have been earlier. It could have been, you know, when I was 13 and a therapist said, I think that there's something going on. So yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you got it on the earlier side and you have, mm-hmm. through, and I know just from a little bit of reading and a bit of personal experience with like a friend that it's a difficult uh, illness to medicate. Mm-hmm. It's like, it can be tricky to get the right yes. combo of meds that, because each person is sort of like a, a snowflake, right? Yes. it's It can be really difficult. And I know now they have things like testing that they can do to see what kind of medicine might work best for your body and stuff. But back then, we didn't have anything like that. And for a long time, they thought I had depression and anxiety instead of bipolar. So because of that, I was on dozens and dozens of medication until we found some that helped. Um, So it just took 
a really long time to find a cocktail of meds that worked. Um, and so, and this is, you know, this brings up issues that like sort of get to neuroses of mind mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to like, like uh, medica- medication. I am a person who I will take any vaccine. I'm fine with vaccines, mm-hmm. but like taking other medications, I will sometimes be like, eh, what does it do? What's the mm-hmm. law? And, and yet it is important to point out, like, for example, cancer medications mm-hmm. or if you're diabetic, like just like, I guess insulin is something the body produces naturally, but there can be what's synthetically produced insulin. Mm-hmm. The point that I'm trying to make is that for certain people suffering from certain things, medication is a godsend and is totally mm-hmm. life changing and life saving in some mm-hmm. instances. So my neuroses are like sometimes overdone. And I just reading this book made me realize that I was like, wow, these medications, when they, when you got the right cocktail, mm-hmm. really change things for you. Yeah. And made me able to, to function in a way that I never could function before. Yeah. And then I think when I was pregnant and had to go off a bunch of these medications and made me realize again, how difficult and different it was when I wasn't on them. It just made getting through each day so much harder when I wasn't on those medications. So it was a big struggle during the pregnancy. It was pregnancy. a big struggle. Yeah. Did you have extra support? Like, what do you, I know you have to wean off for the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain medications can be harmful to a child in utero, but like, mm-hmm. are you talking to a therapist throughout that time? Like, how does your, I guess you were talking to a therapist anyway, but how yeah, do you Yeah, I mean, I've manage? had a therapist consistently since I was young, but I think it was hard because a lot of people, um, a lot of doctors, you know, um, who are in, um, obstetrics don't always know, like, you know, the nitty gritty of psychiatry or psychopharmacology because, you know, that's not their field. And same with the opposite field as well. So I felt like I was trying to navigate different doctors and stuff, and neither of them really knew holistically what was going on. And I remember asking my nurse midwife, is like, if this one thing, this one medication was okay. And she was like, yes that's fine. Like I looked it up, everything's fine. And I just remember her frantically calling me back and like leaving a voicemail and being like, no, it's actually not fine. You know, like just like this very frantic voicemail of, and just me being like, no one knows. (laughs) And like, what am I supposed to do? And feeling very frustrated. And I think now I know that some of the medications I went off of, I could have stayed on because I think there's just like a lot of fear around potential harm for the baby for the fetus and not thinking necessarily of like harm to the mother. And my psychiatrist was like, Oh, I think it'll be okay. So like, why don't we just take you off everything and we'll see how, how you do instead of being like, well, these medications have been proven to be like, you know, lots of other pregnant people have also taken them. So maybe we should keep you on. So had I known the things I know now, I would have, fought a lot harder to stay on some of my medications. Um, and eventually I did, because I was having such a hard time, did go back on on, um, on one of them because it was found to be okay. But I think it, my doctor just had this idea of the less you take, the better. So let's try to do that. And then once you find out that things aren't okay, then we'll put you back on something. Well, that feels familiar to me, like in a different way. But I think like what what feels familiar is the caution of doctors mm-hmm. 
when a patient asks questions along these lines. What I have found in my dealings with doctors over the years mm -hmm. is that anytime there is even the slightest bit of question around safety, mm -hmm. the doctor will always err on the side of on the high side of caution because they fear medical malpractice lawsuits. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard, actually, to get a nuanced answer from a doctor. You ask them, you put them on the spot, most doctors are just going to say, nope, we're going to take you off. Don't mm -hmm. do that because they don't want to do it. And then something happens and then you mm -hmm. sue them. That's my theory of the case anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's hard. It can be hard from the patient's perspective because you're like, you know, I'd really love to have like a real conversation around this. Like, what do you really think? And it sometimes mm -hmm. feels like you're not getting that. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're just getting them kind of pumping the brakes and being like, no, don't do it. You know, don't sue me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it just felt very like disconnected. Like my care felt very disconnected. And it's also like unnerving too, when you start to realize that there are a lot of gray areas in medicine. Mm -hmm. When you or someone you love is a patient and you suddenly look at your doctors and go, oh my God, like they don't know everything. And <laughs> yep. In some cases they know nothing and you're just yeah. like lost at sea a little bit with this. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, that's an yeah. eye opener. I've been through that. And so <laughs> yeah, you talk about the pregnancy period being difficult. I mean, this is just a return of bipolar symptoms in the absence of these medications. Like, can, like how did it manifest? I felt a lot of um, physical agitation. Um, my mood stabilizer was created originally as an anti-convulsant. And so the reason why it works well for like, for me is like, it, it calms my body. So all this agitation that I would feel that would like also come out when I was feeling like very, these rage episodes, you know, my body like being so agitated, it just keeps my body so much more calm. And so when I was off that medication, when I was pregnant, my body, like I could just feel my hands needing to do something like my body was just so physically agitated. So I would rip up like cardboard boxes that I would just be surrounded by pieces of cardboard boxes as having something for my body to do when I was feeling very agitated. So a lot of it was these feelings that were in my body, which is, you know, funny because we think of as all this psych stuff as being solely like emotional distress. But for me, primarily, it felt just this agitation whenever, you know, and there would again be some type of small trigger. I would get annoyed at some small thing. But when I was on my medication, I could be like, I'm annoyed. And that would be it. But was, the, was, this, uh, was this medication Keppra? Like what were you? I'm just curious. Um, so I'm on Trileptal, which is oh, an so, is, so is my son who is oh. epileptic. So oh, okay. I, yeah. I'm so intimately familiar with Trileptal. <laughs> yeah. So I'm on Trileptal. And so when I was pregnant, I was not and so I just felt very agitated and shaky, and it was very frustrating. Yeah. 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 But overall, it sounds like, I mean, insofar as such a story can be a happy one, mm -hmm. that the medical treatment of your bipolar has been pretty successful. Like you have leveled out. I want to say mm -hmm. it. At one point in the book, you're like, I've been five years without a bipolar episode. Mm -hmm. So you've gone long stretches where. The medication cocktail that you're on has done a pretty good job of keeping you on the yeah. level. Yeah. My last hospitalization, which was like my last strong episode, was when I was 23. I'm 34 now. So it's been a long time. So yes, I would say in terms of having care, I feel like I've been stable for a very long time. And I think a lot of that has to do with like financial support and like familial support because so much of like 
so many of my episodes were um, brought on by like a lot of stressors, like environmental and different types of stressors. And I think because right now I'm able to keep my life relatively low key and I do a lot of resting and I do a lot less than I think most other people do, it allows me to live my life in such a way that I can avoid the things that I know can bring on episodes. And unfortunately, because of the country we live in, a lot of that is not accessible to a lot of people. Um, well, so, I, I hear you. I think yeah. about that. You know, you, I'm sure you've thought about this, but like, what do people who have bipolar disorder do when they have no resources? Like that's gotta be, there's gotta be millions or not millions, but maybe millions of people around the world dealing with that. Yeah, and exactly. it's terrible to think about. Yes. And it's so, it's so hard and it's so frustrating because then so many people think that that is, uh, they blame the person themselves or they think like, oh, they have this like severe version of it or like, why aren't they taking their medication? Or there's just so much blame um, when really it's all these different structural, structural issues that could be helping so many people in different ways. Yeah. We don't do, I mean, we don't do a, a good enough job of caring for one another, mm -hmm. you know, especially the people who are ill or on the margins or disabled mm -hmm. or whatever. It's a, we have things we can improve. Let's just put Definitely. it that way. <laughs> yes. Yep. So this is also a grief memoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In addition to being a, a memoir about illness, this is a, definitely a memoir about your dad who died at, I believe, the age of 58. Is that right? Let me think. 2018. Was, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So he was mm -hmm. young. He had yeah. cancer mm -hmm. of the, was it stomach or? Yeah. He had a, he had a stomach um, type of tumor that just spread around. Yeah. That spread around. I mean, and it's, mm -hmm. it was a longer illness. I think he had had some success in treating it, but over time it came back mm -hmm. and, and you're kind of in the story that you're telling, struggling with that, you know, your family is sort of along for the ride, right? With this mm -hmm. illness, the way that uh, families are when someone in, uh, has cancer and the disease progresses over years, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, Touching. I think that's really the heart of the book, along with the story of you becoming a mother. I mean, mm -hmm. those two things, uh, you becoming a mother and your father passing away, happen in a span of months. Yep. Yeah. And so you're trying to kind of put the pieces together. Again, I relate to this. You know, these big things happen in life and you're sort of, at least if you're anything like you or I, you're just like, well, I guess I'm going to write about this. <laughs> <laughs> Try to make sense of what the yeah. hell's going on. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about your dad? He was, again, he was a family practitioner. Mm -hmm. He was a fisherman. Mm -hmm. He's a very charming character on the page. Mm -hmm. He was very goofy. And like one of the things that I write about is that whenever he would read something that I wrote, he would always be like, you know, that he liked it. And he would always say like, it needs more jokes. Um, so I think... <laughs> Had he been able to read my entire book, he would have, you know, been very proud of me, but also been like, it could have used more jokes. Um, <laughs> so he was such a, like a source of levity and joy in our lives. And yeah, I gave birth in the end of October of 2018 and he died at the end of December. So he got to spend like a couple months with my daughter before he passed away. And during that time, my sisters and I and my husband and my daughter were all staying with my parents. So we all got to live together for that, that period of time when after she had just been born and before my father died. So we were kind of like in this small world 
um, in my parents' house. So that you is call like, it the, you, you called it the death house. In yes, the, book. the death house. <laughs> right. Which like, I get it. I get it. Like that's like a heavy energy mm-hmm. to have to cope with. And I think it's something every child fears is the death of a parent. Mm-hmm. And to have to face that fear and mm-hmm. to you know, face the loss of a parent, you just talk a little bit about the space between the mental anxiety and the kind of anticipatory feelings mm-hmm. around that versus the actual experience of mm-hmm. it. So one of my chapters is kind of about this idea of like anticipatory grief because my father was diagnosed in the summer of 2017. That That's when he was told that, you know, that the, it was terminal. And then he died at the end of December of 2018. So there was about a year and a half. But during that time, the prognosis of how long he was going to live shifted. So it felt like we never knew exactly how long it was. We thought it was probably going to be like less than two years. At one point, they said like less than six months and then maybe a little bit longer. And it was just all this worry. It was all this worry and despair and also also wanting to really just spend the time with my dad that I had left. But I still do think now that the anticipatory grief felt harder to me than the grief that I have now, which feels simple because it basically its heart is in love and that I love my father and he is no longer with me. So that feels simple to me. It feels easy to understand that kind of grief. Whereas the anticipatory grief felt so layered in with this fear and this anxiety and this, am I spending enough time with my father? Like, how do I manage, how do I manage all these different things together? And of course, that anticipatory grief is mitigated by the fact that my father was still alive. So you get to spend that time with him and I would give anything to be able to spend that time with him again. But in terms of the feeling itself of anticipatory grief versus like this like retroactive grief, the anticipatory one felt much more complicated and confusing and difficult than what I feel now. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's oftentimes what happens because the the grief that you feel now doesn't have fear inside of it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's the anticipatory grief is all bound up with fear mm-hmm. and that's a complicating factor and you know, gosh, just yesterday my wife was telling me about a friend of ours who law has gone through a couple of really hard losses. Mm-hmm. And then she has a I believe like another family member who had a near death experience. And ever since the near death experience has been like somehow in contact with people on the other side. Mm-hmm. Like and so she has been relaying messages from the two people who were lost and it's like stuff that she could not have known uh-huh. one of these stories. Uh-huh. And so now this friend of uh, ours is like, I have no fear. She's in Greece right now. She's Mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to live my life. I mean, it's like, it's kind of this like wild, like spiritual empowerment story, but I'm like, okay, I'm open. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so crazy. You just don't, don't fully know Mm -hmm. exactly how it all works and what's out there, but it's kind of nice to hear those stories. I love, Mm -hmm. I love that sort of stuff, but it's very touching, you know, the way that you draw this. And then you also write uh, I think this is the third thread is about motherhood and also child loss. It's a story mm-hmm. of miscarriage, mm-hmm. uh, which again, I wrote, wrote a book involving, we had five miscarriages. So, oh, so I, I know that, I know that story. It's not something that p- 
people talk about enough because it happens so frequently and mm -hmm. it's hard. And it is like, it's like almost like, do I get, does this a real loss? Does this count? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it really, when you're going through it, it definitely feels, yeah. at least from my perspective, like a real loss. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. And I think also, like we were talking about with fear before, is that, you know, anytime you get pregnant after that, then it's also so bound in all this fear because of what happened earlier. So my second pregnancy that I gave birth to my daughter from was also like so choked in that fear. Oh, man. Yeah. Every single one for us, like each one got more and more intense. Like yeah, with every I loss, you're just like you get pregnant and it's a nerve wracking mm -hmm. Every day, I'm just like, is everything okay? Everything's okay, mm -hmm. you know. But you don't want to overdo it, so you're just kind of quiet with it, and it's like, it's difficult. But it's not yeah. something people talk about enough, you know. Yeah, I think, I think because people feel like what you said about before about like, does this count, and how do I talk about this? It feels definitely like something that people still have a lot of wariness about being forth forthcoming about it and people also like don't always know what to say also so it's, it's i've also had people i've had people being incredible including people who have had miscarriages mm -hmm. be very sort of nonchalant about it and mm -hmm. like kind of callous and i'm like maybe i need to just toughen up or something. <laughs> <laughs> they're like yeah that one didn't work whatever you know like, i'm just like whoa you know like that was uh not my experience of it mm -hmm. it was like a lot of it too is just like it's just like, it's such a letdown. You have so much excitement. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? This child, you're like, oh my God, like we're going to have a child. And then one day it's like, no, you're not. And it just mm -hmm. goes, it's like all the yeah. air goes out of the balloon. You know, it's a, it's a heartbreaker. Exactly. You have all these dreams, you know, you have, you're, you're imagining, it's like the death of imagination, right? Of, of, of what you can think of in the future. It feels like there's, you had this path that was laid before you and now you have to just like exit out and try to figure out what it looks like again um yeah yeah it's like you know how like when we're earlier in life it's like adolescents or young adults and we are early in like a p possible romantic relationship and the imagination kicks into overdrive mm -hmm. like famously and it's like you're on the second date and you're already like planning your wedding or whatever <laughs> i feel like that's sort of what happens when there's a pregnancy is mm -hmm. that like it's very hard mm -hmm. not to kick into overdrive imaginatively mm -hmm. Like, what's mm -hmm. this child going to be? Is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? What are we yeah. going to name it? What's it going to be like? Who's it? You know, what's it going to look like? And you just, like you say, you're in dream time. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's gone. It's like the death mm -hmm. of dreams, you know, and yeah. it's, it's very sad uh, and hard, hard for parents. It's something that yeah. most people just kind of suffer with quietly. Exactly. And I feel like so much of the power of grief is the collective grief of being able to grieve together. And with miscarriage, you often don't get that. You don't even have people acknowledging it to see, like, I see your grief. You know, I, I see that. So it's it's just really isolating. Well, and it's also like that whole thing, especially when with a first pregnancy where it's like new to you. Mm -hmm. You tell everybody early and then you miscarry and then you've got to kind of tell everybody like, mm -hmm. sorry, false alarm. Like that part sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you get you you get chastened, you know, mm -hmm. by that pretty quickly and then you become very secretive and mm -hmm. it's like we're not telling anybody until like the baby's born you know <laughs> basically um but i found that part of it you know very sweet and relatable but and you do eventually uh have a child mm -hmm. which yeah. is also lovely and kind of writing about the harrowing like childbirth is harrowing too in ways mm -hmm. that people don't 
talk about because there's so much joy in mm-hmm. you know, having the baby and babies are so cute and, and you're, sweet. At that and- time, you're like barely alive. So it's hard to even be able to focus on what just happened to you because you're also trying to survive in the nights and no sleep and stuff. Right. Um, and by right. the time you emerge out of it, it's all kind of like this distant dream. But yeah. Yeah. It's like every once in a while, I'm like, wow, that was that was nuts. We had an emergency C-section. Oh my and, gosh. You know, yeah. I'm like pulling on the scrubs. I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I'm exhausted. Uh, My wife's exhausted. I mean, you know, you go through all that yeah. and then the baby arrives and it sort of just washes that all away. To yeah. Some extent. yeah. Well, you uh, are also, I guess if there's another strain in this book that I want to talk with you about, it is faith mm-hmm. because I feel like this is also a meditation on faith. Mm-hmm. You were raised pretty Christian, right? Yes. Yes. And I grew up going to church, and my family was um, pretty conservative. I still go to the same church I grew up in, but am much less conservative than the way I was. I grew up, and I think that was one of the threads that was one of the hardest to deal with in the book, because I really struggled with how to know how to write about it or what I was even trying to say, and. I felt like there were just so many different ways it could have been misinterpreted or flattened. So that was one of the the trickier parts for me to try to investigate. What is the denomination? What what denomination were you raised? Oh, Presbyterian. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you you wrestle with faith. I think in the acknowledgments, you thank a God I do not understand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that feels honest to me. Yeah. Uh, You know, like uh, who's who's really got a bead? on what is going on here, like cosmically. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I get, like, especially in, like, the darker hours of life, you sort of, I don't know, people do it in all sorts of different ways. But I get the idea of leaning into some sort of faith mm-hmm. or spiritual tradition to try to kind of make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's still the case, mm-hmm. but maybe less, in a less, like, doctrinaire yeah. like, way in a less solid way. Yeah. And I feel like I read in an essay recently about the idea of like re-mystifying instead of demystifying. And I think that is how I feel about faith right now is kind of this like re-mystification instead of a demystification. And also I think what I try to take away from any, any book, especially like a book of essays that I really love is not that it like tells me all the answers, but I feel like, oh, it like brought me to these questions I never thought of before or it deepened the questions or the mysteries. So yeah, that's where I feel right now is that it is a deep mystery to me that I will never solve, but it's just always going to be there. I was just thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about death and I was like, well, like, is there anybody that can tell me what to expect? And I know that sounds kind of silly, but there are people who have near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. I've always said that like some sort of like monastic human being like a, or, or just a person who happens to be like ridiculously calm mm-hmm. uh, as they die and observant of their own mind as they die, but then and then goes into a state of death, but then comes back would probably be the person best positioned to sort of relate what happens. <laughs> But it's like, I just want to know what to do. Like, I would love to try to, I mean, assuming that I am able to like have some awareness of my death as it advances versus Mm -hmm. like dying like in an instant, which Mm -hmm. could happen. I mean, you know, but it's like, I would love to like, what am I supposed to do? What what can I expect to see, if anything, you know, but I don't know. 
it's like, like you say, there's a big mystery component. Mm-hmm. You don't have any insight to you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could give you some insight, but I feel like I feel like that was one of the things that I thought of when I was watching my father die is how at peace he was because I think, you know, about of how deeply he he felt in his faith and he knew where he believed he was going. And, you know, like I say in my book, like I asked him, like, how, like, how do you feel about it? And he felt like he was going on vacation and he was just going on vacation before the rest of us and he was going to like scope it out and try to tell us like the best places to see and hear and that we would follow him later and you know because of my faith and everything I do believe in an afterlife I do believe in a heaven but the the where's and the why's and the how's of it are all very you know are all very amorphous and confusing to me but I think it was just so interesting seeing his death so up close because he never he wasn't in hospice or anything like that. He just stayed in our home and we all lived with him at my parents' house. And so he had a nurse come maybe like every couple of days, but mostly my mom just took care of him. Like the nurse would come like stay for like 30 minutes or something to check and see how he was doing. But my mom basically did all the caring for him. So we just got to see like this this death happen and it I would say like the main dying happened over the course of like maybe like five days and to just kind of watch it and see because I feel like death in America is something that's so separate that we keep so out of sight. It's always happening in like a nursing home or in a hospital and it's like all hidden away. And that was so clear to me when we were all trying to watch as, you know, the nurses or whoever came to pick up his body and they all were like leave leave like go downstairs and we thought that we were like in the way so we were just trying to like move out so that they could have space to to like you know zip up his body in this black bag and take it down the stairs but then I realized like oh they don't want us to see it they don't want us they thought we were gonna watch it and like freak out or something and so different than in other cultures where you have the dead body like laid out and people can pay their respects and you know that there's just like a lot of time to spend with it and they very much were like we have to zip up this body in this bag while no one in the family watches um and so we they all kind of like shuffled us away even though we had been watching him die for so long like we had been there with that body for so long and then but at the end they did not want us to see it I wonder if they've had experience. I mean, I can imagine they might have experiences, especially yeah. with Americans, where people do flip out during the the body bag part. You know, oh, and- definitely. I, I I feel like they are doing this because they have been they have strong reasons. I would imagine, but it just brought back to me how different culturally the idea is. Um, yeah, it's like in India, they put the bodies up on these pyre, you know, pyres mm-hmm. and. They burn the body in public or in Tibet. I think they lay the body out and like the animals eat it. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. I mean, it's a little hardcore, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> we're all just nature. Like put me on a yeah. cliffside. Let the, <laughs> let the vultures go nuts. You know? like, I won't feel it. But, uh, you know, I think that, and I've had this conversation many times on this show before. I think that regular contemplation of death is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a healthy healthy way to be it's not morbid mm-hmm. you know i mean I guess, I guess it can be depending on the way mm-hmm. you're doing it but i just think like the remembrance of like oh yeah old age sickness and death is coming yeah. for us all there is nothing guaranteed mm-hmm. 
and this, you know, meat suit <laughs> that we're not to be crude, but you know what I'm saying? This is all, this is all very temporary. And, uh, you know, you need, I, I just, I also think I, I kind of bristle at this idea of like a good death. I don't like the idea of it being on some sort of like grading scale mm-hmm. where it's like, it's a, just another fucking thing that you have to succeed at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, but I like, that's not, I think, but it w- would be nice to like, not be utterly terrified yeah that would be ideal Mm -hmm. and i feel like yeah like not a scale of like good or bad death but like i feel like does the person feel like they are allowed to like die with dignity and often because of like our medical care system i feel like they aren't like and that you're like separated from all these things that would actually make you feel like cared for as you die um but because I was thinking, like, if my mother couldn't take care of my father or, you know, all of these different things, if if things hadn't happened in the same way, he would have had to die, like, in a hospital surrounded by strangers, as so many people do. And, like, you know, and that can be fine. But we were just so glad that he was able to die, like, in his bed surrounded by us. Yeah. And no, I've heard – I just read something the other day. or There was some TikTok mm-hmm. thing going around where it was, like, a hospice nurse – was relating all that she had learned about the dying. Mm-hmm. One of the things she said is that it's best to die at home. People mm-hmm. have a better experience. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me now that they have, that there's things like death doulas and stuff, which I feel like is great to have people like help you through that process. Um, totally. Yeah. And my dad was cremated. So now like at my book party last week, I took his ashes to the party and we just like had them like on like with a picture of my dad and stuff. I was so afraid I would lose him. I was like, okay, I cannot forget because it was just like a small <laughs> little thing of ashes. It was like, you know, the size of my thumb. And I travel was like, size. Yes, the, the travel size. My mom has the big size, you know, the uh-huh. home size. I have the travel size ashes. And I was like, I cannot forget dad. Um, but luckily I remembered him. I brought him home. But I was like, oh, he can like spiritually and also literally be here at this party. So that was nice. Well, it's interesting, your father being a medical doctor and also a man of deep faith. Mm-hmm. Th- certainly those two things can coexist, but often they don't. Like the mm-hmm. doctors I've known, a lot of them have been very, uh, what's the word? Almost like nihilistic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like just, just like atheists, like, yep, mm-hmm. lights out. You know, like mm-hmm. they're just, I think maybe doctors, especially if they're surgeons and they're dealing in blood and guts and all that kind of stuff, you sort of have to. You know, it's like the gallows humor that you often hear about among <laughs> among doctors. It's a real thing. It's like yeah. a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have that sort of attitude. But your father was a, a like a really Christian doctor. Yeah. And I think also like he was in family practice. So what he really loved was like caring for these people, for these families. And he would have families who would all come to see him and have seen him for like 20 years where he saw all the members of their family and saw them grow up. So I feel like one of his strengths was with talking with people one on one. And then showing them that he did care about them individually, that it's not just like you're some person to come in for five minutes and tell me what your headache is or whatever, but that he did deeply care about you. And I think that influenced or that was part of all of his life in all aspects of it. Well, it sounds great. I mean, I go to the doctor these days and I feel like there's a stopwatch running. Like, I know. Like just, That's how I just... feel too. My daughter's <laughs> yeah. doctor is great. Her pediatrician is great. I was like, I wish I could go to her pediatrician. Right. Plus, they give her a popsicle at the end if she has to get a shot. 
I was like, I hate going to the doctor, but she, hers is amazing. So I wish, I wish I had one like hers. I was thinking about this the other day, like when it comes to, cause again, this goes, this is sort of connected to my fear of medication, which is not entirely founded, but I think about like chemicals in like over the counter products, like mm-hmm. shampoos and creams. I'm like, is this, mm-hmm. what is in this? What is this? All right. Mm-hmm. You know? And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. I think I have a workaround. Like always just get the kids version. <laughs> Cause like I wear sunscreen and like that stuff gets in your eyes mm-hmm. and you're like, it's like you're blinded for yes. an hour. And I'm yes. like, this can't be like, exactly. this can't be good. I'm going to just wear the kids sunscreen. Yes. Cause it's like, it won't sting your eyes. So whatever that horrible shit is that makes me yeah. like oh burn, gosh. but you still have, you know, I'm, I'm assuming these companies are making effective sunscreen for children. You don't want to have like sunburned children. Yeah. So it's like, maybe just get the kids stuff because these exactly. companies have enough like fear, <laughs> fear of fear of lawsuits and enough human decency mm-hmm. to put a little extra care to the products. Because for the adults, the adults, they're like, whatever, just let them just sting. Burn, just yeah. burn your eyes. No. <laughs> yeah, right. It's so bad. The sunscreen burn in your eye is terrible. Well, I always ask people on this show, just as they're celebrating the publication of a book, if they have anything else in the works which is kind of a cruel question, but do you have another book going? I have two different projects going. And I think it's a function of my ADHD that I do. I work best when I have something to procrastinate from. Like if I have two things to do, I'll always do the less critical thing because I just, that's how my brain works. I want to do the thing that is not the thing that's imminently due, but I want to work on the other thing. So if I have one project, I might not do it, but I have two projects that it's more likely that I'll do one of them when I'm bored of the other one. So I have two different long form books going. Both of them are fiction. We will see if either of them come to fruition. They're still in like early mushy first draft stages. Um, But one is very influenced by Greek mythology. And the other one is kind of more like near future dystopia-y. Speculative. Yes, speculative. And that's all I will say about both of them right now. But they are, they're in the mix. Have I worked on them in the past couple months? Not at all, but all right. they are they are there. And you're feeling good. Yes, I feel like or I'm excited. Feeling to pick well, up those projects. I should say. Yeah, I'm excited to fit, pick those up later, like next year, when I can kind of wind down from all this book stuff. Right now, I have not been doing anything except mostly like watching Korean reality shows and lying in my bed. I have not read a single thing in so long, but. That is what I guess I need to do right now to make it through debut season. And then after that, I can hopefully have brain capacity to like pick up a book. It's, there's a time and a season for everything. Mm-hmm. And this needs to be underlined because I think in this culture, we, it's like we valorize people who are workaholics mm-hmm. and who go completely crazy. I mean, they, I guess they don't go completely crazy. They're wired for it somehow. They can tolerate it or they just, you know, they're so used to being miserable that they've just, it's their de facto state, but it's okay to like, you I mean, by the way, this book, I know it took a long time for it to sort of incubate, but you were in a very like fevered period of work over the course of the pandemic and Mm -hmm. getting this book into form makes perfect sense to me that you would take some downtime Mm -hmm. after it rolls out, right? I mean, that just seems like the right cycle. Exactly. I I need a lot of rest. I rest all the time. I do all my writing in bed. I have like this like big pillow that I prop up that has arms. I have this whole setup 
where I have like my external like wireless keyboard here and then my like laptop screen there and I do everything just like mostly horizontal. Um, so I need a lot of rest and I feel like, yeah, doing doing the book at the beginning when I sold the book, I was like, I hope I don't have to be hospitalized because of the stress of doing this book. And I was kind of joking, but I also was like, but kind of for real. And it was very stressful and very harrowing. And so I do feel like this time is like needed to like decompress. And that's why very much I did not want to write about myself after this. I was like, I'm going to do something fiction. I do not want to delve deep into my own personal stuff. I just need to like do something that does not feel like wrenching right now. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I also get being comfortable while you're being creative. Mm -hmm. That's underrated. I mean, a lot of people, there are a lot of people who write in bed, like famously, but I, I write in a recliner. This is relatively <laughs> new for me because I used to just sit at a desk and I have a nice office chair, but mm -hmm. it's not the same. It's nice to get comfortable. Yeah. Unless you're one of these like self-punishing austere writers who like gets off on like, it's like a, a wooden chair <laughs> cold in a cold room, like whatever mm -hmm. you need, I guess. But like, I think there's some merit to the idea that if you're physically comfortable and relaxed, mm -hmm. you're going to do better creative work mm -hmm. than if you're like uncomfortable and you know, hurting your lower lumbar for no reason, <laughs> you know, just to kind of, yeah, I don't know, earn, earn some sort of like suffering points, <laughs> mm -hmm. but you, you relax. I do. I do relax a lot. What about this pillow with the arms? What is it? Who makes it? I don't know. I just, my husband got it for me online. It's called, I think a husband pillow because it has like these arms <laughs> that go around it, but it's I'm very gonna large get a husband and it keeps me like in place and it has these armrests. And I often do most of my first drafts um, longhand in a lar very large notebook. So I can like prop up my arms while I write longhand. And then, then I'll type it up later and edit it um, onto my computer. So it just keeps me like semi like at an angle. So my back doesn't hurt the whole way, but also like my legs are fully flat. So I can just kind of stretch out. All right. Sounds good. I'm going to have to investigate. <laughs> I think I can picture this pillow. I think mm -hmm. I can. It's almost like a chair pillow or something. Yeah, you know? pretty much. Yeah. All right. Well, it's great to meet you. And uh, congratulations on the night parade. I'm so happy we got to spotlight it in the book club this month. And I just really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was Jamie Nakamura Lynn, her new memoir, is called The Night Parade, available for Mariner Books. It is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club. If you want to sign up and become a member of the book club, you can do that at otherppl.com. If you want to find Jamie on the internet, her website is jamienakamuralin.com. You can also follow her on social media. I believe she is on Instagram and Twitter. One more time, the new book is called The Night Parade, a speculative memoir. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Be sure to sign up for my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. It's free. And join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Write a little review if that's an option. 
It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get some apparel, another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And last but not least, a quick plug for my latest book. It's a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my book, my book is there waiting for you. It's somewhere. It's out there. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, coming up on Wednesday, my guest will be Michael Cunningham. He won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction back in 1999 for his novel, The Hours, which was later adapted into an Academy Award-winning film. Michael Cunningham is publishing this very week a brand new novel entitled Day. It is available from Random House. So Michael Cunningham, coming up on Wednesday. Stay tuned.